So my background's in the Air Force. I started uh, once I graduated the Air Force Academy in 2012. I started out as a combat rescue officer and um, my job was obviously working in personnel recovery and working with small teams kind of geographically separated and doing some really fun things. Um, we we're jumping out of planes, riding in helicopters, um, doing all the things that, you know, you associate with, uh, you know, military special operations. And it's a really good group of guys to be a part of. Welcome to the Uptime Podcast. I am your co-host, Alan Hall, here with Rosemary Barnes and Joel Saxum. And we have a, a, a really packed show today. We were talking about the Siemens Gamesa recyclable blade that's going to be put out in the ocean off the coast of Germany coming up this summer. Uh, the Biden-Harris administration is proposing offshore leases offshore for California. And then we have a really interesting guest, Will Friedel, CEO of Prometheus Wind, will be here. And he's going to be talking about tensioning and torquing a bolt, like tower bolts that are super important. And then after the interview, we're going to talk a bit about the uh, Australian election that we recently had, a change of government, and I explain a, a little bit about some of the unique features of the Australian electoral system and so how it led to that result. And then we talk about ESG ratings and how it can be that a green sort of company like Tesla can get kicked out of the S&P ESG 500, whereas a fossil fuel company like ExxonMobil can, um, ExxonMobil can remain within it. Guys, Siemens Mesa is sister producing the first recyclable blade and they're actually going to deploy it offshore. Now, uh, there are a factory in Hull in the UK, which is a, a big factory for Siemens Gamesa in terms of blades, is the one producing this. And they're, they're, they're using that uh, recycled blades technology. Uh, and when the blade is finished, it's going out to RWE's installation in Kaskasi, offshore wind farm, K-A-S-K-A-S-I. Kaskasi? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's missing a consonant somewhere in there. So it's in the German German North Sea. It's going out there this summer, Rosemary. So like, like, like it's soon, right? Uh, yeah. The resin system is created by, here's another name I'm going to murder, Adida Berla Advanced Materials. So they're, they created this resin system a while ago, evidently. And if you go onto the website like I did, you can actually see some pretty cool uh, description of what it is. But it, it does... It's what Rosemary has talked about and explained to us before, Joel, which is you can get a thermal set and it sort of interlinks together, and then you can magically throw some chemical at it and it unlinks and she can break the components apart again. So that's, that's the technology. Uh, so this wind farm where this blade is going to be is a 342 megawatt wind farm, uh, which has gonna, which will have 38 Siemens Gamesa wind turbines with a output of up to 9 megawatts. That doesn't sound right. It sounds like there must be 9 megawatt turbines. That doesn't sound right either, but maybe it is. Uh, <clears throat> so this this site has a couple of other innovations, which I think are interesting. They're using collared monopiles for the turbines out in the ocean, and they're using a vibrating pile driving system. So instead of dropping the massive weight on top and, and sort of hammering the uh, piling down into the seafloor, they're actually sort of vibrating it down, which is uh, another technique. So... It's sort of like this collective of 
different ideas that RWB is going to be evolved with and Siemens Commit is going to be evolved with. So it's not just the blade, recyclable blade, but there's a lot of other new technology going in one place. Question is, do you think Siemens Gamesa really has this figured out enough to actually deploy a recyclable blade in the field? So, Alan, maybe you saw some different information to me because uh, from what I have read, it's very vague about um, the, the resin being used and the recycling process. Did you say that you saw it was a thermoset or a thermoplastic? Okay, it said it was both. both. <laughs> okay, so if you go onto the manufacturer's website, it says it's a thermoset that also can be made into a thermoplastic. And I don't know if that means the two individual components are thermoplastic and then it turns into a thermal set the way they're doing it. But the, it, it read like it acts, works like a thermal set, but it was actually a thermoplastic. So there okay. was some sort of transformation happening in the middle of that. Okay. Does that make any sense? Because that, that's what the website said. It doesn't currently make sense to me, um, but it could be that I don't, <laughs> I don't fully understand it because I just found like a sales brochure that um, is very, very vague in its wording, just talks about why we need yep. to recycle blades a lot, and that's, um, that's understood. Um, and then it says the recycling process is that they will immerse the blade into a mild acidic solution, um, heat, right. a heated mild acidic solution, which will Eat separate it. the resin yep. from the fiberglass, plastic, wooden materials. Now, I'm imagining that they are not going to be, I mean, the resin is going to be dissolved in this heated mild acidic solution, right? So the resin itself right. doesn't sound like it's going to be recycled, that it's about recycling the, the fibers and all the other stuff in there um, is my, my guess, um, which would maybe explain why they're a little bit further ahead than some of their competitors. Everyone's trying pretty hard to make a recyclable blade. And until now, the most exciting right. progress was this LM blade where, you know, they just made a one-off blade and are now doing te testing with it. Whereas Seamus Gamesa said that they've already made six blades and yeah, they're going to install a couple of um, demo turbines actually offshore. So, you know, that puts them a fair bit further along if they already understand this material well enough to be um, installing it on turbines. That's, that's further, that surprises me how, how close they are, how ready they are to that, because usually it's a long process to qualify. It's not just a new resin, it's a new type of resin if you want to make it, you know, fully recyclable or, yeah, change from a thermo, thermoset to a thermoplastic. So it kind of implies right. that it's a smaller change. Um, yeah, it would be really interesting to talk to an engineer involved in this and not, um, uh, you know, the communications department's uh, take on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if they're talking because the, when I went to their website, the manufacturer's website, they're not using it just for wind turbines. They had other industries that were using this same sort of resin system. Why would it be just limited to wind turbines? It should be almost all thermal sets in theory could use this recyclable resin system. Yeah, yeah. It, does it reference anything besides resin? Does it reference any of the, the gel coat or any of the, the you know, fiberglass inlay? Is it synthetic glass? Or, you know, there's a boat manufacturer out there right now that's doing uh, uh, using glass or uh, flaxseed. Or flax, yeah, green boats. Flaxseed. Yeah, green boats for um, their yep. uh, on the podcast. But does it, yeah, does really it mention cool. anything like that besides the resin? Is it, or is no, it just? Only, mm -mm. It explicitly says the only difference is the resin. Um, okay. Yeah, so I guess that the challenge is going to be then, uh, it's, it's not 100% new. We have been able to dissolve resin a away from composite fibers for a while. 
um, and even you know um, natural materials like flax. That's that's not not new in the composites world. Um, it's just you know usually economics that's preventing that. But the challenge with dissolving the resin away from the fibers is then you know what do you do with these fibers because the you know the strength and all of the amazing properties of composite materials come from these long long fibers and they are um you know they're they're thin enough that they contain no no flaws in them so you know glass is usually a very right. brittle material but if you make it in a very very thin fiber there's no space for a you know an air bubble or a, a crack or something and so you get um these really amazing properties but you need the long fibers to actually take advantage of that if you have yep. in your recycling process if you end up damaging the fibers and shortening them then you're, you're really you know downgrading the the structural properties of, of that so it's it's really interesting um to make a recyclable blade but it's also very fuzzy what recyclable means because i mean you can already take a wind turbine blade and shred it and turn it into you know material to make a a, a deck out of or you know a car dashboard out of or some some low structural requirements application <laughs> that already exists so what i want to know is what are they going to be able to do with these fibers after they recycle them and that's the interesting point well, they can make it into a nacelle, right? I mean, the, the nacelles are usually made out of chopped fiber, at least the ones I've been around. So you could actually take the blade, take the fiber, chop it, and then cast yourself in the cell or make a surfboard or whatever else you wanted to do with it. But at least you have the ability to, to recycle that component. And it sounds like they want to, Joel, they want to reuse the resin. Like they want to split it apart, put it back in the barrels, and then build something else with it. And probably. Yeah. Yeah, well, you could use it for a nacelle, maybe. You could, I mean, those are epoxy resin systems of some sort, yeah. so they yeah. could reuse it there. It doesn't sound Does, like they'll be able that makes to, sense? Though, so, with it, this one. If they're dissolving it into an acid bath, then how are you going to re-get re that resin out of the solution again? Uh, I, I think that there's some ad advance that's that, been made here, but I think that if you read between the lines, it, a lot of it is maybe creative marketing of uh, the term recyclable. It might not mean what you kind of interpret mm. it to mean but if they are able to um take the, the if, glass fiber or carbon fiber and turn it into something as useful as in a cell or a surfboard then that will be a step up from where we are today so um at the moment you know usually you're, you're shredding it so small that you you wouldn't be able to to do something like that so yeah it'd be interesting to get more details if i can get is... adita burla on the podcast <laughs> if i got if i could get adita burla on the podcast would yeah. you talk to them like if i could twist some arms yeah, there yeah, and yeah, convince anyone. them to come oh. on <laughs> I'll okay. grill anybody on this, on this topic and see <laughs> see what they'll tell me <laughs> okay i think that's i think it's a fair fair trade let's see if we can make that happen because everybody wants to know what this recycling material is and how it breaks down i think and you're right i think your question about the epoxy how it breaks down with this I've heard the, the acid described as something equivalent to lemon juice it's not lemon juice but something similar to break this epoxy mm. part I think we all want to hear what mm. that is. Next topic, Biden and Harris administration proposes first ever California offshore wind lease sale. And as we talked to Kevin Ewing a few months back about the leases on the East Coast, it's a long involved process, but they're talking about really two separate areas from what I can tell, sort of like Central California and Northern California. They're not really discussing Southern California, which is probably one of the more major energy users in the country. Uh, but they're opening up uh, a couple of, couple of sites that in theory would be about four and a half gigawatts 
of wind, which is pretty massive, actually. That's a lot of wind turbines. Uh, they're thinking that there's there's going to be this lease process like there was on the East Coast for uh, Byte and a couple others, which generated a couple four billion dollars so i'm guessing that california and the federal government in particular is going to be making orders of magnitude more than that off of these off of these leases but a couple a couple of things about these leases which are, are i think are unique or unique to me uh first obviously joel they're going to be floating wind turbines that's yeah, the yeah. first thing because yeah, the, yeah it's it's right, uh, i mean coast of California is much like the coast of Norway, right? There's not a whole lot of offshore wind along the coast of Norway because it just gets deep too quick. So you're going to have the same thing out in, uh, out in this, out in the California side. So the, the federal government is giving credits. And this is, this is interesting because it's sort of a loaded system on the, on the bidding. Um, you get a two and a half percent bidding credit uh, for bidders who have executed or commit to executing a, a community benefit agreement with the community or ocean users, who's an ocean user besides the fisheries, right. um, who, who are going to use that area. So they're, they're, if you work with the local fish, fish <laughs> fisheries over yeah. there, uh, you, yeah, the community, you're going to get 2.5% credit. You can get a 20% bidding credit if you commit to invest in programs that will advance U.S. offshore wind energy workforce training, supply chain development, or both. That's a 20% is huge. Massive. Right? Massive, right? So who's not going to do that, right? I mean, that's going to decide the winners and the losers right there. And uh, the requirement that the leasees make every reasonable effort to enter into a project labor agreement covering the construction of the project, which basically means, I think, is that coded words for, Joel, you can tell me, is that coded words for connecting with a union to install absolutely. the turbines. Is that what that means? I would say okay. absolutely, yeah. And then the... Go ahead. It just seems a little odd otherwise. I mean, and the last one is requirements for the leases to engage with tribes, underserved communities, ocean users, and agencies. Leases will be required to report on their engagement and make reasonable efforts to implement their projects in a manner that minimizes and mitigates their projects' adverse effects, if any, on these parties. So it sounds like you have to have a community get together to decide if your wind turbine project off the coast of California is going to affect anybody. <laughs> I, I don't know how you come to an agreement there, but it's a requirement. So th there's a lot of things. And just besides, we're going to put some turbines out in the water out here, and I'm going to pay you a couple billion dollars for that spot. I've also had some obligations to work with the local community, work with unions, and uh, not be a nuisance. I think that's what they're saying. So is it is is this auction going to be as massive as the one on the East Coast? I think that's the question. Well, I think like, so to your points are the two and a half percent bidding credit for the community benefit and the 20% for bidders who commit to invest. I think those are very solid metric based things. Uh, the next points where they say, right. uh, well, you have to do your best efforts to do this. That's kind of wishy-washy and, and I'm not sure how, how much that will fly. But yeah, you're going to see the same things on this on the West Coast as you did on the East Coast. Uh, involvement with the unions um, so, so they can bring in some high paying jobs. Uh, totally understood. But I think the, sure. the difference here between the two is the whole world right now is looking at floating wind. How do we do it efficiently? What are the best models? What are the best ways to do it? Do we do a spar? Do we do this? There's all kinds of different designs out there. Uh, the East Coast, when they did all the auctions there, that's existing technology. You know, your monopiles or jackets, you're out in, you know, what is it, 20 to 65, 80 meters of water. 
that that can be done right now. So there's not as much risk to that that auction and that four point, you know, one billion dollars or whatever we saw go for the New York bite. Like that was very high. But I don't know if you'll see that level of um, involvement in the California one for two reasons in my head. One reason it's all floating. Right. So the technology isn't quite right. there where it's not it's not mature. We don't know exactly uh, what the best way to do that is. Uh, and the second one, all of these companies just spent a pile of money on the East Coast. So the, the, right. <laughs> they did. Yeah. True. So there might be. And you saw, the, you know, the, the uh, auction that was just in the Carolinas uh, didn't fetch as high a prices as the auction up in uh, the northern part of the East yeah. Coast. So. Uh, while I'd, I'm, I'm happy to see this happen, um, the the uh, regulatory climate of the off the off the California coast, I think, is going to be a little bit more intense uh, than some of the stuff you'll see on the East Coast. So, is it going to be the same kind of timeline that uh, you see the developments going from from auction to to first energy coming to shore? I think it'll be longer over there. I, I, I could honestly think that in my mind, the California lease sales might go first, but I could see wind in the Gulf before that, just because of the regulatory environment mm. and and, tech, and technology. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound. But Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. I have with me today Will Friedel, who is the CEO of Prometheus Wind based in Monument, Colorado. Welcome to the program, Will. Thanks for having me. Hey, so there's a a lot to discuss today, and you're in a unique situation because Prometheus is is a small business. You're you're getting into wind, and you're you're similar to our company, actually, in, in terms of probably size. Uh, so we can kind of go back and forth about the different things that are happening on the small business end of being in wind and some of the difficulties and also want to learn some of the things you guys do in regards to uh, tensioning and torquing of bolts, which is something I don't know anything about. So I want to have a little dialogue there. So what got you started in wind energy and what made you want to start a business? So my background's in the Air Force. I started uh, once I graduated the Air Force Academy in 2012. I started out as a combat rescue officer and um, my job was obviously working in personnel recovery and working with small teams kind of geographically separated and doing some really fun things. Um, we were jumping out of planes, riding in helicopters, um, doing all the things that you know you associate with uh, you know, military special operations. And it's a really good group of guys to be a part of, you know. Um, and, you know, more recently when I decided that I was going to get out of the military, um, you know, I took away uh, the thing that I that I got out from the military um, throughout that whole experience is that I realized that that the things that were really fun about the military were great. You know, they, they really provided a lot of value. But what I wanted in the next job and the next step of my life was to have a really strong connection between how I was spending my time and what I was doing and what was valuable to me, you know. And so I was willing to do something that's not quite as fun, but um, probably a little bit more purposeful. So 
Um, so working in the wind industry, you know, our, our mission set is really to kind of save the ecology of the earth, you know, and, and that's, that's something that's like, you can't really get, that's another like really awesome mission set that that's very motivational. And, and it's not, um, it, the only issue is that it's kind of ethereal, you know, it's not like, you know, you do a lot of activity. You don't, you don't like look at, look at your watch and be like, Oh, nice. That's a, it's a half degree saved right there, you know? And, uh, so, so it's like really hard to, to grasp onto. So what actually is what I find the most motivational and, and, and what I have that the strongest connection with is, uh, very similarly to the military, the wind industry has a lot of, you know, young adults who are coming into it and they're they're pouring their lives into this industry you know that they go out especially the traveling technicians anybody working construction they go to these sites and they'll work there you know 60 70 hours a week they don't have a whole lot of other things going on you know and it kind of becomes this you know consuming environment for them and uh and if you set it up well like there's a lot of opportunity to create um, mentorship and growth in these individuals and really take them, you know, through the struggles of, uh, of, uh, you know, that everybody deals with, you know, going through life and uh, you can give them lessons learned. You can give them tools that, that they'll use for the rest of their life. You know, they'll get out of wind eventually, you know, especially if they're traveling, a lot of guys, you know, they've only got five or six years in them as travelers. And then they go and they, they transition to a different stage of their life. But the things and the lessons that they learned and the mentorship that they get, they'll be able to use that forever. And then, you know, hopefully maybe even pass it on to their to their kids. And so it's it's um, it's that it's that environment that, you know, everybody's working towards this goal, very um, you know, putting a lot of effort into it. And, um, and and that creates a sense of camaraderie. It's all work. It's all working for a purpose. Right. It's all working towards a purpose. Yeah, it's all working towards a purpose. And, um, you know, you've got the, the purpose of the work that you're doing. And then you've got the growth that comes from the experience of, of, of having that uh, having that purpose. So, yeah, you're right. I think wind is challenging. Uh, it's it's got to be somewhat like being in the military service is that <laughs> you're kind of out on your own a lot of the time. And the work you have is challenging in front of you and, and you're it. It isn't like you have 50 people standing there willing to help you. You're you're out there with, you know, with the. the two, three people working on wind turbines, trying to figure out how to make this thing go. It, it takes, a, one, a lot of uh, intestinal fortitude and a lot of knowledge of what you should be doing. So it's challenging. That's good, right? That's good. Which I, I guess leads you into why you want to start a small business, because you've already had the challenge of being in the Air Force, which is challenging enough, and now you want to transition over to starting a, a, a wind business. Uh, what are some of those challenges that you have just starting up and, and getting that business going? It's a little bit non-standard. I would say my challenges are kind of different um, because of the Air Force's background. You know, the Air Force uh, almost does itself a disservice in that it, it really invests a lot of people in its lead. Oh, sorry, it invests a lot of uh, energy in developing its people and uh, specifically the leaders. And, um, and so, you know, you go through all of these different experiences in order to gain these um, capabilities. And at the end, you're like, man, I could do anything. <laughs> and then they're like, all right, your contract's up. You want to stay? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> so, so um, my last experience, for instance, I was working at the Air Force Academy and, um, and my job was to, to run summer programs. And so um, essentially we would work all through the school year. It was just me and a small team and we would develop uh, the different training operations that would happen in the summer. And then, you know, in the springtime when, you know, school finished, we would take 600 
people. So we'd take 400 students, 200 uh, permanent party, and we would train them up on this new uh, job that they would do that's not something that they do in their day to day. And then, we, you know, once they were ready, we'd bring in a thousand students and we would run the 1600 person, you know, operation through the summer, you know, doing all the same, same stuff that you do in an organization, you know, controlling, controlling for quality, controlling for safety, managing HR, all, all the different things that the activities, it was my, my team's responsibility to design the systems that did that, you know. And so, you know, having gone through such a large scale, uh, essentially, entrepreneurship experience, I real I realized that like, I, I would, you know, I really had a passion for it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I really got to see the the fruits of the design. And even though it took a long time to get there, once it, everything came together, it was really um, just an amazing experience. And so, um, so, so when it comes to when you the question, you know, come back to the question, you're like, what's what's the the challenges that I've run into, it's not the, it's not the systemizing, it's not learning how to delegate, it's not the things that, you know, you, you hear from a lot of different entrepreneurs. For me, the challenge, the biggest challenge by far is, is getting access to decision makers and understanding their perspectives and being able to, you know, communicate value to them because I have zero connections in the wind industry. You know, we started off and I was like, all right, let me let me check LinkedIn to see, you know, who do I know in this industry? And there was nobody, you know, I, I, there was there was one person, you know, who's a site leader um, for a company that there's no way that we can, you know, as a startup, become a, a customer for, you know, and he, he gave me a little bit. But that was it, you know, so so it's like starting from from ground zero, trying to figure this out. My brothers have lots of experience and they have lots of um, contacts in the industry, but the, all of their contacts are mainly at the technician level. So they, we know a lot of people who are really good at getting a lot of work done, but we don't know the decision makers. Um, you know, we, we don't know the project managers. We don't know the, we don't know, uh, the program managers. We don't know the executives. And so like trying to get to the people and, and be, and, and be able to communicate the value that, that we have and, and, you know, in a way that allows them to, to you know, to take the financial uh, leap of faith in order to to test this out, just to, has been something that we've been um, working on for a long time. So, what are the, what are some of the ways that you're reaching out right now to connect with some of those uh, procurement people and the the engineers that are running around trying to keep all these wind turbines running? They're really busy people. How are you trying to connect with everybody? It's, it's networking by force, I guess, you know, so like going, doing as many, you know, going to as many, you know, I'm not super, I'm not an extrovert, you know, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not like one of those natural connectors. And so it's been a challenge for me, but it's been something obviously that I've needed, needed to do my brothers and I, all of us. And so we've gone to networking events, you know, the, the, the conferences, you know, especially once COVID ended, we're like, all right, let's take advantage of all these things, you know, so, so OMS back in, uh, so we did OMS back in March. Before that, we did um, a ACP. Uh, we went to the Blades. Con we've been to the Blades Conference, you know, for our blade repair uh, department, and um, and then you know we're going we're going to have a presence in uh, in the ACP that's coming up in in um, what is that two weeks from now? No, oh, San Antonio. So we're doing that. We've done a lot of we've done a little bit of LinkedIn. I'm not a social media guy myself, but uh, but we've done we you know built a presence on LinkedIn, and then. Um, and then we've done a lot of sales trips, you know, knocking on knocking on doors and just, you know, telling people, hey, this is what we're about. You know, um, do you think this is a service that's valuable to you? You know, and then or, 
and then going to the next place and, and, and seeing what we can drum up from there. But, um, but it seems like you got to tell the whole world. That's a good, that's a good way to do it. When you're a small business, you got to sift through like a lot of people bef- in order to find those early adopters because they're, they're definitely few and far between it seems. Yeah. And I think the hardest part in wind is everybody's so busy that it's hard to, to meet up with people because they are so active right now that getting someone's attention for, or just a couple of minutes is really hard. And you're right. I think going to those conferences is probably the right place because it's probably the only time where a lot of the technicians and staff and engineers get a time to slightly decompress where they're, they know they're going to be somewhere without the phone ringing every five minutes. It's probably the place to be. <laughs> so that's good. You know, you think you're doing the right thing. Yeah. So your company has done a lot with uh, tensioning of bolts or retensioning of bolts, sort of, the, the checks that happen there. Uh, and I, 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 that's a fascinating area for me because it's something that I'm not familiar with at all. But I know watching the industry, there's, there's a lot of effort into making sure the bolts are tight and that they remain tight. And we have had seen issues with that more recently with tower bolts that have come loose or they've had been some sort of um, upset or the, the vibration were it's caused damage. Uh, so what are some of those issues about bolt tensioning or retensioning that you see out there in the field? And why would a bolt as massive as some of these bolts are ever come loose? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different reasons. On one site that my brother was at, they, uh, when they were doing the construction operations, uh, they were torquing the bolts and they got the wrong torque specs. So they over torqued all of these different bolts, you know, and so they had to come back through and sweep, you know, and if you leave a bolt over torqued uh, too much, it's going to, it, you know, it has the potential to just, just snap clean in half, you know. So obviously that's something that that's a huge, you know, failure mode there. Um, then you've got the, the, just the vibration, you know, these things are, are swaying back and forth. They're, you know, they're moving with the wind and, um, and just that movement, the vibration of the, of the machinery um, can, can allow that uh, bolt to, to loosen up. You can have the material degradation where, you know, it just doesn't have you know, the, it's been stretched, and that, but that stretch doesn't maintain the, the 100% of the tension over time. Um, you know, specifically for the, the base bolts, you can have the grout uh, start to degrade. You can have those bolts move a little bit. So um, there's all kinds of things that can happen over time that kind of require you to check the bolts just to make sure that they're uh, operating within the safe capacity. Yeah, I, uh, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, I decided to actually look up on YouTube, like, what does bolt tension even look like? I didn't realize it, it's, it's a complicated procedure. There's a lot to it. Uh, it it's a hydraulic system that, that puts pressure on the bolt and actually elongates the, the bolt and puts, puts the joint together, kind of squishes the joint together. It's not straightforward. I, I thought it was just a bunch of guys out there with wrenches tightening things down. It's not like that at all. It's much more complicated. Oh, yeah, 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 no. Definitely. Oh, yeah. So how, well, how, how often do you do that? How, how often should those, those tower bolts be checked? You know, uh, so I'm not an engineer. <laughs> uh, basically, in accordance with the engineering specifications, you know, different manufacturers have different practices that they use, different timelines. Um, and those are the bolts within the actual turbine. And then um, the foundations also generally have their own, um, you know, tension check schedule that they go through. 
So it all depends on basically when the when the turbines handed over to the owners, the owners get the maintenance schedule and they'll have, you know, it'll tell them, OK, this year do this, you know, this operating year do this. And and uh, and generally every year there's some sort of tension check that's being done. Do then every OEM, do the, the, all the OEMs have the same procedure or do they really have varying procedures? I, I, I can't imagine <laughs> all the OEMs have their own special niche, right? And it seems like uh, everybody's doing things slightly differently. Are, are they all tensioning bolts or some of them torquing bolts? What, or, or is there some consistency between the, the OEMs? So they're definitely not getting together and, <laughs> and having a committee on how to do this. So uh, definitely doing their own thing. Um, you know, different manufacturers have their, uh, you know, some manufacturers, they, they like to, the, to torque all of the bolts, um, you know, and there, there's some benefits to that. Uh, the idea behind torquing, by the way, is, is um, you're trying to uh, basically twist the nut in such a way that it creates uh, a certain amount of tension within, you know, the bolt. Okay, so it, at the end of the day, what you're trying to get is an accurate tension read. Um, so you can either do that by stretching the bolt and then, you know, and then seating the nut, and that's that's called tensioning, or you can do it by torquing, which is where you're just taking the nut and uh, and twisting it until it, it reaches a certain torque value that then translates in an ideal world into a tension value. Obviously, like if you put if you put grease between the the nut and you know the flange, then obviously there's going to be a different tension value. Or if there's dirt or there's not, so there so torquing isn't as accurate, but um, but it's a lot easier to uh, collect the data. You know the torque guns are usually electric, and they've got uh, you know you go through and, it, and the electric gun tells you the torque data for every single, you know, bolt that you touch. The tensioners are not electric. They're, they're hydraulic. And, um, you just have, you know, you go through and you, and you mark the ones that you tension and, um, you trust that the person actually, uh, the person who's got the machine in his hand is actually going through and tensioning each of the bolts that he touches. So do the OEMs or do the owners, I would imagine because it's such a critical piece here, do they require calibration of the tools and certification of the tools? And what's all involved there to make sure you get an accurate tension on a bolt? Yes. The answer is yes. Um, every system that you use has to be calibrated, um, you know, with different different timelines based on uh, what you're doing with it. Yeah, for torquing, it, you're basically going to send that in. The manufacturer is going to, uh, you know, check the tool, make sure it's good, and then send it back to you. Um for tensioning, um, the whole system is kind of built off of um, the way it works is you, you pump hydraulic fluid in at a certain pressure and that goes into what's called a head. And that head, um, based on the surface area of the hydraulic pressure, like of the, of the head, that, that pressure translates into a certain amount of tension, uh, a certain amount of expansion force that turns into tension for the bolt. For that device, everything is basically measured by the pressure that's in the system. So the dial, <laughs> the gauge, the pressure gauge. That's it. Sorry, lose <laughs> my word. That's the one. That's the the only component that gets sent in, and they they check that to make sure that's good to go, and and then send it back. So, what's the procedure then when you're tensioning a bolt? I, I know, having gone through aircraft uh, torquing school when I worked at the aircraft industry, they taught us how to torque a bolt. And as an engineer, you're like, oh, okay, I, I kind of understand that. But in tensioning, which I've never done before, do you? Is it are you tensioning every bolt pretty much or is it especially for 
sites that have been around for a little while? Are they doing a sampling? What what what's the what's the steps there? So the act of tensioning a bolt um, and the and the tension program are, are kind of are two different things. So I'll I'll go over the act of tensioning a bolt. Basically, um, you know, you put you put this. It looks like a, a like a, a number ten can, you know, with a hole in the middle of it. It's kind of what it looks like, and it's connected to a hydraulic hose. And you kind of put that over the bolt, you know, and over the nut. That's uh, that's that's attached to the bolt. And then you screwed what's called a reaction device in, which is essentially just a nut that connects that that makes it to where that when this can expands, uh, it it the reaction device grabs the bolt and and pulls the bolt. To a certain tension value okay and so um and so in order to make that that tin can the head is what it's called expand you uh, hook it to a hydraulic hose you put you pressurize the hose the uh the the head expands um and then the reaction device grabs the the uh the bolt and pulls it to a specific tension value and then you just make sure that um that the bolt that was originally in place, or sorry, the nut that was originally in place is still seated. Um, and some people are like, oh, if you grab that nut and you really crank on it, you're going to get some some extra tension in the in the system. But that's not not at all true um, because of the high amount um, of tension that you're pulling on that nut. No, like amount of hand cranking is going to make any difference as as part of a percentage of the overall force that's being applied. So basically, you, as you pull, as you pull it, then as you pull it, then if that nut's loose, if it's loose, like hand loose, you would tighten it. But if it's working properly, it should be pretty snug. Is that what happens? Yeah, because you're not actually pulling it to 100% of its working value. So you pull it to 90% of the working value, and so it, so there should still be a lot of pressure on that nut, and so it shouldn't move at all. If there is pressure on its nut, on that nut, then then it's failed the test essentially. And so, um, so the way it's done programmatically is that you go through and you do a 10%, generally you do like a 10% sample on, on these base bolts. And, uh, and if any of the nuts in that 10% fail, if any of the, the, the base bolts fail, then you do 100% re retention. And that's where you're gonna bring it up to 100% of its working value. And you're gonna, you're gonna make sure that all of the, the nuts are seated. It is a device that kind of grabs into the remaining threads of the bolt and pulls it or pulls it compresses the joint by pulling the pulling the bolt which is amazing to think you could pull on that hard enough to make it move but the, these these tensioners are sort of massive devices they are big hydraulic presses in a, in a sense so if you can pull it and it moves that be and the nut moves that'd be a little bit troubling right so at that point if you if you're sampling and you sample 10% of them and one of those or two of them you can really twist the nut now you know you got an issue. So then you go back and you tension all the bolts around the ring. Is is that what happens? Yeah, hundred percent of them around the ring um, for that specific tower. And so how how many of those towers have you done end up needing a hundred percent retensioning? One percent, ten percent. It depends on the age of uh, the site, how often the site's been checked before. You know, what are the conditions of the site as well? So. Um, you know, it, it could be from, you know, five to 20% of, of them that fail. It happens. It's definitely something that happens and it happens with enough frequency that, that this is a procedure that, that should be done. And I think it's a well-justified procedure. Yeah. Because if the OEMs are calling it out, they, they realize that there's a lot of load there and they want to make sure nothing bad happens. So it makes sense to re retention these bolts. So I'd imagine 
you're decently busy this summer. There's a, there's a lot of wind turbines in the Midwest, and you're, you're located in Colorado. You're not very far from a lot of wind farms. How, how busy is your summer? So we're actually currently on site at a 300 turbine site. Um, after that, we've got um, three or four contracts that are in the works right now um, for, for tensioning. Uh, we also have, so tensioning, uh, torque and tension is only one of the, the, or scheduled maintenance really, is only one of the departments that we've got. We also have uh, blade repair and we do construction management as well. And so for um, our blade repair, we've got another couple contracts that are in the works um and um but that's that that being said there's uh <laughs> we've definitely not hit capacity for what we're capable of of executing so we're we're definitely looking for more work so well how do people reach out to you and get a hold of prometheus wind so they can reach us at our website it's uh prometheuswind.com and pro that's spelled p-r-o-m-e-t-h-e-u-s wind um or you can send an email uh, to our operations at operations. Uh, our email address is operations at prometheuswind.com. Well, hey, thanks, Will. I appreciate you having me on the program. I look to have you back in the future. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. So thanks to Will Friedel for being on the podcast. I hope to have Will back on in the near future. We're going to shift gears a little bit and start talking about Australian politics since we have Rosemary here, even though she is currently located in the United States, basically the birthplace of democracy. Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> and so Australia had a bunch of elections and we're trying to figure out like what the hell happened? Because when you reopen the, the newspapers in America, there's like this massive shift in Australia and all the greenies are now going to lead to this renewable future in Australia. But when I look at things in Australia, it's kind of like, Oh, hum, there's another election. Do you want to explain what just happened in Australia? Yeah, so I don't think, I don't feel like it was ho-hum. It's, it, you know, um, we had a we had a government okay. that was truly terrible for climate change and they wrecked a lot of, yeah, they just wrecked everything for the last um, more than 10 years, let's say 15 years. Um, and so it's really good to see that gone. But everyone's reporting it like it was this climate election but it's funny because the two major parties right. in Australia really didn't talk about climate much. Um, and in fact, I feel like the, the government that, or the our new, our current new government, the Labor Party, um, I feel like they really specifically went out of their way to not talk about it because um, the last few elections that they've lost, they've had you know, kind of like progressively less um, less ambitious targets and policies um, and they keep on getting smashed on it and it's a really big contradiction because uh, several elections at least maybe for a long way back every um, poll including the exit polls show that people rank climate change as their number one concern in Australia and then have just consistently <laughs> voted for um, a government oh, yeah. that is really really uh, trying hard to do nothing about it. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. But one, the thing that happened with the election that was really unusual wasn't so much um, about the party that won, the Labor Party, the, it's the more progressive party. 
it was more about how badly the current, the previous government, who they're called the Liberals, but that actually means conservative um, in Australia. So that's probably confusing <laughs> for you. At one point, they were some sort of liberal, but confusing for me, <laughs> everybody, you, okay. you Americans. Yes. <laughs> They're, they're supposed to be economically liberal, um, but it, it's all very jumbled now. Um, so they lost a ton of seats to independents, and the independents are uh, people who are mostly conservative, except for that they care about climate change, that they care about um, women, not just women's rights, but, um, you know, women's equal participation in society, say. Um, and then the third thing was in integrity. That was the, the third issue um, that these groups mm. of um, independents went on. And so I think it, that's a really big success story because it's like, you, you know, I'm sure you're the same in America, in a lot of countries that have like a two-party dominant system, it feels like infuriating that you just have these, you know, like battles that just repeat yeah. between two terrible options and there's no way to ever change that. But now we have like 10% or more of the seats in our um, House of Representatives uh, uh, taken by independents and then the Greens Party picked up a lot too. And the reason why they were able to do that I think is largely because of the way that their Australian um, electoral system works. So I won't like <laughs> give you a lecture on Australian democracy, but there's there's three three big things that are different in Australia compared to the the US. And I know Europe is totally different again. Um, so Australia's system is more similar to the US. But first of all, um, Australia has compulsory voting, so everybody <laughs> has to vote. We get more than ninety yeah more than ninety percent of people turn out and vote every single election. Um, so that the effect of that is that you don't have to motivate people to go vote. It's not about the the really you know the fringe ideas of people who are really passionate about some you know extreme position. They don't really play, or they don't have that much influence in the the politics because you need to convince most people, most ordinary people, not just people motivated enough to follow politics, but everybody will vote. So you need to convince them. Um, second thing yeah. is we don't have gerrymandering in Australia. The, um, the borders of the electorates, they're set by an independent um, commission. So you don't get any weird things where you get, um, yeah, where, where you get, you know, like maybe most of a state, maybe a state has, you know, mostly progressive voters, but the electorates are drawn so that they're all concentrated in a couple of seats and the rest are spread out. You don't, you don't have that in Australia. So I think that that makes it a little bit more, um, less extreme. But then the most significant thing is that we have preferential voting. So you don't just say, I want candidate X to win. You say, I like candidate X the best. And if they don't get in, then I want my vote to go for this person who I like second best, and then the third best, the fourth best, fifth best. So it means you can vote for an independent or someone that has no chance of winning. And if they get the fewest votes, then they'll take your vote and put it in a different pile, the pile that you put number two. So for Rosemary, what does this mean for Australia and renewable projects like the Star of the South and a couple of the offshore wind projects, are they going to get ramped up or is it just less uh, impediments in front of them now? So the, um, the 
Labor Party, the Progressive Party, they have a majority in in the House of Reps, so they they can you know right. set the direction on their own. They don't need to form a coalition with anybody or convince any of these okay. independents to vote with them. Um, in the Senate, it's it's different. In the Senate, the Greens Party will have the balance of power, so they will have to negotiate there mm. to to get things through the Senate. So the actual result is not that different to what we've had before. And I mean, anybody listening from Europe will know that, you know, these coalition governments are the norm in most countries over there. And we've had them in Australia before right. too, and it works quite nicely to actually have to negotiate with other people to, you know, get your, your, um, your positions through because it makes them more, you know, probably more broadly satisfactory. Um, so it's not a, not a big difference, but one thing about the Labor Party is uh, I quite like their platform actually for climate change um, because one, it was a platform that allowed them to get elected, whereas you know if they had adopted more extreme or you know better climate policies, I don't think that they would have got elected. So we would have kept our terrible government. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing is that they have they're not focusing as much on on targets, announcing policies and, um, you know, nice sounding things, all of their, um, their policies are all to do with, okay, we need more transmission. We need to make it, you know, easier to to connect to the grid. We need more, um, we need more storage, you know, distributed storage, things like that. And from my opinion, that's, that's the actual things that we need to do to speed up the energy transition is get rid of some of these roadblocks to, you know, installing more renewables. So I think that we are going to see a lot mm. of action, but it's not going to come in the form of like huge targets that are going to make, you know, climate activists happy. But sure. yeah, climate engineers like me, yeah, um, yeah we're well, happy. That, this is going to be an interesting rollout. I guess we'll have to keep an eye on it over the next year or two, because if they're really serious about basically removing regulation is what you're talking about, then they're going to have to get on it pretty quickly because there's a lot of work that needs to yep. be done. Interesting. Thanks, Rosemary, for that. That was that's good to catch up on that. So everybody's been following the ESG discussion in the United States, and and Elon Musk uh, really dropping a bomb on it in the last week or so. So l- let's just kind of step back a minute and talk about what ESG is. So major stock indexes actually track um, different companies based on their ESG. Index and the Standards and Poor's has an ESG index. And what is the ESG? Uh, it's environmental, social, and governance. So there's like three areas that you can basically put numbers against. And so what happens is these rating companies like S and P go back and look to see what a company has done in the environmental arena, in the social arena, and on governance, and then stick a number on top of that. Well, <laughs> when they did that, ExxonMobil did great. And Tesla got booted out of the ranking altogether. They got taken out of that index fund. And Elon Musk is like, what the hell's going on, right? Uh, Tesla CEO Elon Musk called the ratings a scam, quote unquote, a scam. And the U.S. uh, Securities and Exchange Commission proposed new disclosure rules for funds that market themselves as ESG focused. So basically they're saying, hey, are you guys cooking the books? And if so, you need to open the books so everybody can see how you're creating these ranking systems. So uh, kind of how this goes is Tesla probably does rate very high in a lot of environmental factors, but there's some uh, discussions about their social and government governments, governance that some analysts are not super happy with. Uh, the S&P listed 
some racial discrimination lawsuits with Tesla, some poor working conditions at a factory that I have been to out in California as part of the reason why they fell down and ExxonMobil got ranked near the top. So I guess that leads to the question of, there's, there's a lot of discussion about ESG and do we use it? Is it useful? Or is it just, as Rosemary puts it, greenwashing <laughs> of companies to put a nice little label on ExxonMobil and some of the uh, oil companies? The floor is open. Uh, because I, I don't know if there's a good answer. You know, I, dug, I dug into some of the ESG uh, statements that you see online. And what you start to find when you go industry by industry, silo by silo, depending on who you're, you're talking about, an oil company, you're talking about a software yeah. company, it's never apples to apples. And I know, like like you said, like Standard Poor, they have their, their, their yeah. checkboxes and there are these things. But, uh, you know, when you look at, um, say, ExxonMobil versus Tesla, because this is what the article that we're talking about here is. It doesn't take into consideration any of the after effects of the products when they're used, right? So ExxonMobil gets gets almost true. like a they get, a they get a pat on the back and Tesla doesn't because they're, they don't create emissions when the vehicles are running or you know, when they're putting fuel into things of that sort, right? So the after effects of what their products aren't taken into consideration. So you're not talking apples to apples there, right? And you, it's, this, it's kind of the mm. – to me, to me, it seems like – um, when people start talking about carbon credits and carbon indexes, it's almost um, not regulated in a certain way. There isn't an actual legitimate market sitting there, yeah. so it, it, yeah, it's hard I, to it's hard to measure. The people that I know that work you know within this space and you know help help with some aspects of these ratings pretty consistently think that it's a, a joke. Um, the you know the ESA, ESG ratings uh, rankings. And I think it's partly because what they're trying to do, you know, you've got the three things, environment, social, governance. Usually people actually mean when they talk about these things. I mean, that's why everyone's outraged about Tesla, right? I think people know that Tesla has all these problems um, related to its workforce and, you know, the, the cases that you mentioned, Alan, about racial discrimination and, oh, and that sort of thing. Um, so... Are they any different oh, than I, I mean, I, I, I don't Really? Tesla? You think Tesla is um, any different than any I've other US corporation? I've got the impression. I, really? I've never been tempted to pursue a career at, at Tesla because it sounds like a horrible place to work to me. So I think... You're, you're getting worked hard. Sure. I, I, I it, don't doubt that. And it that. sounds like a but bit it of is, a lack is it like, of any different than any other place? And, um, yeah, I don't know. I get... Mm. I, I mean, I have got bad bad impressions from it uh, of it from what I've read, but... I've never considered working for an oil and gas company, so I couldn't tell you if um, right. you know if that's that's better or worse. And I know in the Australian mining industry, there's been a huge, huge um, case where people have suddenly discovered that it's a terrible place for a woman to work on a remote mine in Australia. Um, yeah, so yeah. it probably is fairly widespread. Um, I don't think it's easy for minorities most places. But to what extent does it make sense that you lump all that in together? I mean, if you care about the environment right. then you know should you just be should there just be climate friendly but, companies and should there I, be if i think you it care makes... about diversity should you know there be maybe be a diversity index instead maybe i think it's kind of conflating right. a lot of things together yeah, yeah. right I, I think you're right about that and I, I, from working in america for a long time and walking the streets and being in a lot of places 
uh, Americans are pretty knowledgeable about what's going on. It isn't like these are all hidden. It, 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 people know what's happening inside General Motors or Ford or any large of these, any large corporation where you got thousands of employees. There's going to be a variety of nonsense things that are going on, and it's just a conglomeration of a bunch of humans put together. So there's going to be noise inside of there for sure. But is it really? Are they really different? Do you think that the CEO of Ford is better or worse than the CEO of Tesla in terms of handling? governance i i probably don't see a lot of difference there i don't see a lot of difference between a lot of these companies i think what it comes down to is do you like the products that they make mm -hmm. or not if i don't like oil then sure then you're gonna derate exxon mobile but do i need an esg rating to know that like well, what ESG rating wouldn't, wouldn't tell you that anyway because they rank companies within yeah, sectors right. and they don't include scope free emissions so you know like joel was saying um tesla doesn't get the benefit of selling cars that don't emit um co2 and ExxonMobil doesn't pay a penalty for selling their product that they i mean they know that yeah. their, <laughs> their customers are going to burn it right it's not not a secret so a lot yeah, of it seems. I think the other important aspect is that it depends what you can measure as well. Like how do you measure exactly. the diversity um, and yeah, the, the S and G parts are so much more fuzzy to measure. Right. Whereas the E part, yep. there's a lot of metrics you can, you can actually do. And so I, I would personally separate I them, agree. them out. Yeah. I think it's hard on the, on the uh, social side. I think you have a hard time and there, if, if left up to people's, it's just like you talked about, Rosemary, you wouldn't choose to work at Tesla. Okay. Well, a lot of people choose not to work at a lot of places. It doesn't mean there is inherent um, limitations that are being placed on employment there. It just means people are free to choose, and that's fine. Mm. Uh, if the opposite were true and there were restrictions, then I think a lot of people be blowing the whistle about it and saying, well, this isn't right. And, and rightly so. They should do that. Uh, but in this Google world where I can instantaneously see every lawsuit that's brought to every company instantaneously. I can, I can see what the emissions are pretty quickly on, on what a company does. I, I just don't see this need for ESG. And I think that's why Elon Musk is calling it a scam because it is like cooking the books a little bit, right? I think in the United States, we went through all the housing debacle and the, and the collapse of Lehman Brothers and all this stuff that was sort of based on Standard and Poor's and some other yeah. um, ranking yeah. companies. The yeah. ratings, yeah, they were giving ratings that were just complete BS. And I feel like, well, are we just back to 2007 and eight again? Where we're creating these ratings, which ha maybe have some implication on the performance of a company, and they really don't. So what's the point of them? And should we? Should, we, should the U.S. government, which it seems to be getting involved in this? Is the U.S. government going to put their stamp on it? Because that was the problem in the 2007 and eight, which is the U.S. government. BF, Fannie, and Freddie put their stamp on this kind of stuff and let it go on and didn't really audit the process. And now we went through years of turmoil, two, three solid years of turmoil. And I, I kind of feel like ESG is going down the same pathway. Joel, am I too far well, off I think, the I think what we see here? in ESG right now is um, while those things are all good, we're trying to move towards them, right? We're trying to solve climate issues. We're trying to solve some of these social issues. You see, you're seeing all these oh, things yeah. come up and companies are making moves towards yep. this. But- it almost seems like that that ESG metric or index is the is the trendy thing right now that you see for you know if, of course in the investing world. But um, like Rosemary says, the the term greenwashing is perfect, and it, it's a you know it's very it's very common now too. You'll see 
Uh, I know, I know of actually uh, a group out of Houston that bought um, an like an algae plant to do biofuels, well knowing that they were going to lose, they're going to lose oh, their pants sure. on it when they when they bought it. But it was to be able to be able to market it to say we're doing something good for the environment. So it's so hard to see behind behind shadows mm. and behind mm. you know what's real, what's not, and like met is it metric? What's intrinsic? Some of it is on feeling. I'm sure some of these people just don't like Elon Musk, and they and that that's how he might have got a check mark here and there. But um, yeah. I, I don't know if it's something that we want to base our economy on. Is a is a, a rating that uh, you know right. a, uh, one group says of another. He said, she said. Right. Do I want not to invest in Tesla? I I would say I want to invest in Tesla because they're doing good things. Exactly. And. If the federal government steps in and says their ESG rating is not high enough, we want you to, to delist them. We want you to take them off the stock index. You're messing with which, in theory, you're I messing mean, with capitalism. It's crazy as it <laughs> seems. Yeah, you're really you're messing with capitalism, and that's not a smart thing to do yeah. in America. That gets you thrown out of office pretty. That quickly, gets your so. It's an interesting piece that's that going on. That gets inflation to eight and a half percent. Yeah, I guess <laughs> right. Exactly. And Rosemary, you should trademark greenwashing. I think that's your word, actually, isn't no, it? I, mean, it's I not feel like I should put TM no. after that. <laughs> no, no, okay. no. That's, that's a very normal normal word. <laughs> but I'm, I'm pleased that you think that I <laughs> that I came up with it. Just get yourself a stamp and stamp it. Greenwashing. And maybe I, I see it more places than most people. <laughs> so that's going to do it for this week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Stay tuned next week. We have another interesting guest. Uh, I'm not going to announce it now, but you will enjoy it. And keep listening. We have a lot of subscribers actually on Spotify. So we really appreciate all the Spotify users, Apple uh, podcast, a lot of, lot of serious users on that platform too. Check us out on YouTube and do not miss Engineering with Rosie because <laughs> she has a lot of great programming. I just watched the recent video, Rosemary. It was excellent. So stay tuned. We'll see you next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.